everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Jeff Payne. Hi, Jeff. Hi, everybody. Hi, Steph. Um, and Jeff is with me because Jeff is a fellow romantic 18th century, early 19th century scholar. And we thought that now would be an excellent time to talk about the 200th anniversary of the publication of two of Jane Austen's most wonderful novels, um, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey. So they were published in December 1817, and now it is December 2017, so let's celebrate with Hooray! Jane. Yay! Um, so, Jeff, I thought we'd start with Persuasion, because when you came and spoke to us about Jane Austen, you, um, both of us, actually me, um, spoke a lot about <laughs> Northanger Abbey. So let's let's start by talking about Persuasion. So what what... What do you like? What is interesting to you about persuasion? I guess there are several things that interest me about persuasion. Um, again, in in previous discussions, I think that we've both acknowledged the fact that probably there is something about Anne Elliot mm. as a heroine that is quite distinct in Jane Austen's oeuvre and shows a, a kind of development in in the way in which she's thinking about what type of heroine ought to exist in the novel. And th th this will feed into Northanger Abbey as well because mm. Northanger Abbey is very concerned in a playful way with matters of genre and, mm. and what uh, a novel could could look and, like yeah, would what it look could like do. what it yeah. could do yeah. and 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 Austen obviously as a craftswoman mm. maintains an interest in those kinds of mm. issues all the way through and Anne Elliot is is, is a divergence she's almost uh, not long ago I was rereading a little bit of Pride and Prejudice mm. and I was reminded of the um, discussions around oh no sense and sensibility I'm sorry mm, yeah and Marion's definition of when somebody is over the hill as a woman <laughs> yeah. and you know that if you were still unmarried at the age of 26 all hope has passed <laughs> for you yeah and you're you you become a person of no interest yeah um socially artistically because Marion is all about mm. the artistry yeah um she, this is the the character of the the point at which a woman becomes a non-entity. Yeah, and this is the point that Austen picks up mm. Anne Elliot, and we have that narrative of of her um, uh, of her existence in this social world where she is on the cusp of becoming a non-entity. She's twenty eight. She's over the hill. That's right. Mm. That's right. Um, but she's still she, she she is over the hill. But there is still memories of the lost bloom and and what yeah. have you. So and I she think can recover the lost bloom at she, times. Well, she does. In fact, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the novel makes specific mention of the fact after the the accident at Lyme. Mm. Um, of the fact that when she's next seen in town or something like that, or. or it could even be sooner. It could be immediately after the mm. exertions of of, um, of the, the the moment that, that, that there's a, an acknowledgement of the fact that she that she's recovered something of her bloom. And when people see her, it's it's at that point that cousin Elliot mm. sees her and forms his designs mm. 
on her. Um, so anyway, that, that that's one kind of element of of the um, novel that's of interest. Um, the other thing is, is I suppose it it, show, it it continues on this project of the development of the style of writing the novel and and the the attention to the internal capacities, the the interiority mm. of thought. And it's a very interior novel. It's it's, yeah. it's very um, heavily focalised through Anne Elliot, mm. um, but with that um, developing. Um, stylistic feature that that, that that Austin is has been working with over the time. The other thing that's of interest to me, of course, is the fact that it's published posthumously. Yes, yes. So um, Jane and Austen so, had died earlier that same year. That's so right. It's, it's published after her death. Yeah. And one gets the sense as one reads the novel that there are things that she might still have fixed. Yeah. In, in the novel, yeah. had she had the time to go, and so it becomes a, a kind of a a little bit of a fun thing to think about. Well, you know, what might have, what, how finished was it? What yeah. might have changed? Well, it's one of the few novels of Austen's where we actually have her her drafting process because we mm. have the deleted um, ending. So she changed the ending to the ending that's very famous today with the letter and all of that. Um, that that Captain Wentworth writes to Anne. So she she's still working, and mm. it's and it's unusual because we don't have any of her manuscripts really to see her in the process of working through something mm. and saying, okay, this is not quite working. It's not quite having the effect I want. This is this is a better way to go. So it is it is an interesting novel. In you can ch- use it to sort of chart her thinking about the novel and how she can bring out those desired effects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and because of that, it, it kind of enriches our, our knowledge of Austen mm, yeah. as an artist um, immensely. And, uh, um, and aside from that, you know, I think Anne Elliot, for me, is one of the most engaging, mm. um, best-drawn characters. She's that, so that thoughtful, she isn't she? She is so yeah. thoughtful. Well, because yeah. we have so much of her interiority, yeah. because there is so much um, going on, we... we and and she's also more expressive of things in a restrained way, but she's highly expressive of mm. emotion and of desire. Mm. Um, she's one of the few heroines who, for most of the novel, we know that she wants the hero. Yeah, that's right. There's no kind of self-deception. <laughs> I mean, if you think about Emma, which is another novel where there's a lot of vocalisation through the main character, yeah. she's completely at odds with her emotions she has no kind of understanding of, of how she really feels and you know she doesn't understand herself but Anne Elliot does yeah yeah that's she's right. older and she knows herself and she knows what she wants it's just that life has conspired to not give that to her I mean she's a very similar character in position to Emma yeah um, she's a member of a wealthy family a younger daughter mm-hmm. um, hasn't necessarily she terrible doesn't have father. the terrible father <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah that goes without saying, saying in, Austin. in Austin yeah um and but she has self awareness yeah that Emma somehow has that's one of the major failings of Emma isn't yeah, it? that Emma right. has developed no self awareness mm. and Anne Elliot has too much yeah. or, almost to an extent she she's overdetermined by self awareness mm. um Though she didn't always have it, so we're aware of the, again we're coming to her as an older character, and there is mm. there is this development. She used to be mm. able to be persuaded to act in the correct way mm. and um, now socially, she, yeah. and, and now, now she's, she's much more aware of herself. Yeah. yeah, and and again, you know, in that way that she doesn't she doesn't um, paint anybody else as being a villain mm. or having advised her in what she 
mm. now feels to be wrong. She yeah. understands the virtue of what they've said, but she's developed enough self-awareness and confidence in her own ideas to be able to say, I understand why you said that, but, but that was wrong. Not right. yeah, that's, that's not right. Yeah. And had I my time again, I would make a different decision. And she's so sensitive to other people. She's surrounded by a lot of characters that are terrible, mm. that are horrible people, but she never... I mean, she might judge their actions, but she will always temper that judgment with a kind of real um, awareness of where they're coming from. Like, her father is this horrible person, but she's always aware of, of his kind of... Um, what is motivating his behaviour, his sister, who is also I mean, he terrible. really is one of the most terrible characters He really Austin. is, yeah. <laughs> He's really, I mean, just, you know, obsessed with the aristocracy, venal, vain, obsessed with himself, you know, and, and has no... and has abrogated his responsibilities, really. Mm. I mean, it's the archetype of the Regency dandy yeah. who, who, you know, is just so thoroughly um, invested in his self and his self-image and presentation that he has absolutely no mm. ability to look outside that little bubble that he's created for himself. And it is and it is a bubble. It's completely meaningless. It, it, yeah, and it, nobody cares about him. Nobody cares about yeah. him or, or his position or reputation aside from himself. That's right, and he's ageing and he hasn't kind of come to grips with his his ageing um, nature. He's, he's obsessed with his, how you know beautiful he is and, and his position in society. And as an older man, nobody cares anymore no. about about you know how beautiful he is or perceives himself to be. And the family is completely sidelined. Mm. They're a laughing stock, really, and they've lost all their money. Yeah. And how embarrassing that this you know. I mean, he's yet another. Fa- he's one of the most iconic failed patriarchs of the. Yeah. But you know, given. Um, the Regency, yeah, and the the development of the character of the prince, soon to be king, yeah. Um, you know, it becomes a really potent um, indictment socially yeah. of the the system. At Do you large. see him as a kind of prince regent figure? As a kind of prince, yeah. he's not. He's not the prince regent. He, no. He's he he is different. He doesn't have quite the same. Um, corporeal desires, so for, or he hasn't yeah. given over to them, perhaps, perhaps as, to as the, the extent yeah. that the Prince Regent has. So for those um, listeners who might not be aware, so the Prince Regent um, was the son of the King, and he became the Regent because um, the King, George III, famously went mad. Some of you might have seen the madness of King George and so forth. Um, and the, re- the Prince Regent, while he was very attractive in, in his day, and he was, you know, the kind of the Regency dandy, he had quite famously gone to seed and he was this increasingly... Loved his food. Yes, he was increasingly large and um, decadent and he had all this collection of mistresses and and Jane Austen hated him Mm. um, because of the way he treated his wife and um, because of his, you know, spendthrift ways and he was, it was a, I mean, if if anyone's seen Blackadder (laughs) um, and seen Hugh Laurie's (laughs) depiction of the Prince Regent. Sausage time! Yeah, exactly. Um, And if you haven't seen Blackadder, go and watch it. Blackadder 3, I think it is. Um, So he's not a, you know, particularly attractive figure. And she had to, um, interestingly, she was asked by the Prince Regent, who was Mm. a big fan of hers, to dedicate Emma to him. And so she does very kind of like, okay, well, if I have to, I have to. And then she makes fun of him privately so i've always seen him as a kind of prince regent figure although he's not he doesn't quite and Elliot's father doesn't quite align with him entirely not entirely but he's, mm. he's clearly he, he clearly does have that kind of symbolic function mm. of showing us a type of 
patriarchal figure. I mean, he's a mm. member of the aristocracy, mm. uh, a low-down member of the aristocracy, but with aspirations, is, for with aspira- <laughs> but yeah. but but who is you know because of his ar- aristocratic position, he's thoroughly obsessed with with mm. um, the preservation of the appearance of that and the mm. fact that the, the fact that everybody should give him deference because of that kind of position. Um, which has led to an entire vacuity of <clears throat> moral character. Mm. Um, and because of that, you know, because he exists in this novel as that type of figure and because the Prince Regent exists in social discourse as that type of figure as well, there has to be, a, a, mm. a, a if not deliberate, at least a... Mm. a, a a, 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 an imperative to read them against mm. each other and understand mm. how he is symbolising certain things that are wrong socially. And because Austen, as always, is very interested in the way in which the social order impacts the lives of women. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that is a, 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 a um, an over, overwhelmingly dominant theme throughout her works. Mm. Um, it's not, of course, her only interest, but she is really interested in that that kind of issue. And 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 she, in her various novels, she she investigates that position of women in various ways. And I think, um, for me, persuasion is about the isolation of women, about what happens. So, so even though they live in this highly controlled incredibly um, minutely organised social system where women are never allowed to be alone. Mm. Um, They are completely isolated Mm. um, within that system. They have no ability to act with much agency. Um, They have no ability to escape, to have time to do little things that they would like to do or even to think a lot of the time. Mm. Um, well, Anne Elliot has always seemed when you when you reread it, it, it strikes me that she's always so busy well, that's and so right. put upon. Every she has to her whole life is about managing others and managing the expectations of those around her. She's never given a kind of space to, you know, she talks about like wanting to be alone and process things, and she doesn't get that opportunity because she's always because she's a woman and presumed to have kind of no needs, you know. Outside no, of the imperative no, no. to care for others. Well, caring for mm. others is the imperative for women. Yeah. And you can't care for others if there aren't others around. Yeah. Um, and it has to be a specific set of others yeah. within your class and within your family, family. group yeah. um, that you are authorised to care for. So, I mean, for Anne Elliot, for much of the novel, the closest she comes to being alone is when she gets to nurse the the sick child mm. Mary Mary's son who breaks his arm and she gets yeah. to stay home for an evening to look after the child while everybody else goes off to the big house mm. um, but aside from that she's almost always when we see her in the novel in company in some way shape or form and even then she's even in her role in the sick in the sick bed I suppose even with Louisa Musgrove's injury it's always about you know caring That's... nurturing it's never about you know okay I just I don't feel like going out. I'm going to stay home. It's, and she never has the option to do that. Mm. So even when she is alone, it's always in the context of, of others. That's why that scene in which um, one of her nephews, or I think it's one of her nephews, is, is on her back and Captain Wentworth is yes. Yes, yes. so powerful. Mm. You just get this sense of like, oh, she's been removed 
a burden by him. Well, again, it's such a symbolic mm. thing, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, here he is... She she's been placed in a position where she needs to where she is expected to care for this child who is not her own child and to perform mm. all the social duties because the child's mother, her sister, is unwilling or incapable of dealing psychologically with mm. the reality that she's found herself in, which is um, continually fails to live up to her expectations of what they ought to be, and so yeah. she you know it creates this really um, absurd character but also um a really sad character yeah she she she, i think she's a really interestingly drawn character because um she is presented in this ludicrous way but she there there is also you can't help but feel for the situation that she's in i mean her sister has turned down marriage with charles musgrove Mm. and we know that she was right to do so yeah (laughs) Yeah, um, and so she's got the sloppy seconds, really. Well, she's got the sloppy seconds, but also, you know, she thought that she was going to be getting yeah. certain things in marrying, which she hasn't actually she got. Did. She has to keep on fighting for the mm. position that she achieves, so mimicking her father in terms yeah. of, you know, that obsession with social position and what have you. Um but at the same time, you know, she doesn't get the attentions of her husband. Her husband is out shooting all the time, mm. and um, you know, it's she, a very lonely. It's existence, a very lonely, yeah. isolated existence. She mm. and so her um, bids for attention, her hypochondria, mm. all that that kind of stuff is is entirely understandable within yeah. her context. Mm. Um, it doesn't make her any less of a ludicrous character, but it just does. Mm. It's it's one of those ways in which Austen, you know, has her cake. Yeah. And eats it in that, you know, she has the, the stereotypical hypochondriac woman, but creates a degree of realism and sympathy for that character at the same time as being pretty ruthless with her yeah. <laughs> in terms of setting her up. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. No, well, we were talking about something else. We were talking about the child on the back. Yes, the child on the back. Yeah. And on the back. And so, you know, he's, he's emblematic of this, mm. again, system that is literally crushing her. Mm. Um, and so when Captain Elliot steps in, as nobody else does... Captain Wentworth. Captain Wentworth, sorry, yes. Um, <laughs> as nobody else does and lifts the child off her back. Does the child have a name? I don't even recall. I don't remember. It might be Little Charles. Little, it, it probably it is. It probably is Little Charles. <laughs> Let's call him Little Charles. Let's call him just little for the Charles, sake yeah. of this recording. Yeah. Um, when they lift, when he lifts him off the back, it has this, you know, mm. clear symbolic resonance, mm. and you know, there's alignment with the uh, with her father and with the the whole social system again. Mm. Um, you know, the way in which Anne is being crushed by that system, mm. and there's an implication that the only way out of it is through masculine intervention. Yeah, that she needs to be saved. That she needs to be saved. Mm. And that's one of those points that maybe we'll come back to again later in the discussion yeah. um, about whether that is ultimately the, the, the message in the, the novel. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I thought we before we touch on that, mm. it's quite funny too. It is. It's, it's one of, um, I think the novel seems to me, it's always associated in the kind of popular discourse with, you know, Jane Austen kind of slowing down and, you know, autumnal themes and all of this mm. and, you know, a kind of elegiac quality to it. But it's actually got some of her kind of broadest social satire and broadest kind of um, comedic indictment of yeah. the world around her because it is quite savage at times. Absolutely. I mean, the the large fat sign <laughs> st- 
strike me. Yeah. Because she's talking over, about... Over yeah. a mother who was, you know, talking about a mother who has lost her son at sea. Yeah. She's grieving. She's grieving. Yeah. And we get this mm. dreadfully savage description of her. And her large fat And her sighing. large fat sighings. And now, mm. I mean, you know, the, the context that, that is placed around her large fat sighings does kind of lift up the, the understanding of why one make might be... Mm. Amused rather than sympathetic towards the, mm. the the mother's grief at this stage. Nobody cared about the child when he was alive. Yeah, it was a he's bit been, of a useless. He's a useless. They 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 shipped him off to to sea to get rid of him because he was the black sheep of the family. And his and name was Richard. His name was Richard. And so he Jane Austen had a legendary <laughs> animus against men whose name was Richard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and um. And it had happened 10 years previous, or maybe yeah. not quite that long ago, but it, but it, it years, certainly yeah. happened a long time ago. And there hadn't been any grieving in between mm. until the point that Captain Wentworth is all of a sudden, who, who has previous, not at the time that he died, but had previously been one of his captains, um, is coming to visit mm. into the area. And so then all of a sudden she's starting to eulogise and... Mm. Um, and feel this terrible, sad mm. emotion for her son. And posture. And, so and posture. Yeah. But, but it doesn't really... I mean, this is, and it's one of those points where, you know, we're getting the focalisation of Anne. Mm. So we're getting Anne's judgments mm. upon Mrs Musgrove. Mm. And Anne herself is quite savage yeah. in her assessments of all of the people around her. Mm. Most of the time she tempers them, but sometimes for the readers they come through. Yeah. Um, and, and that does generate a wonderful humour because it, it, it kind of... We know that socially, outwardly, she presents this very repressed, muted, um, mm. almost indistinct, almost yeah. invisible persona. But interior, in the interior life there is this savage humour, there is... Mm. Um, depth of emotion that we don't see elsewhere in, in Austen's narratives. I'm also thinking too about, you know, Captain Benwick and his kind of, you know, romantic poetry. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm going to remember my lost love and forever and recite romantic poetry and then the second he can he's engaged to <laughs> Louisa Musgrove and um, and she treats Louisa and Mary Musgrove quite, um, quite is it Mary, the older sister? Probably again, Probably, I, I don't. Yeah, um, we our memories are failing us today. But she she treats her quite, those two quite savagely as well, out of jealousy. Yes, but um, and she's obviously jealous about their ability and, to flirt. You know, with she Captain I, because when when we're in, when we're introduced to them in the first instance, mm. she quite likes them well enough. Like yeah. you know, they're they're, they're, they're pleasant enough people yeah. to spend time with, and it's only once Captain Wentworth starts, yeah, giving them. Attention and appears to be going to marry about uh, Louisa, Louisa that um, yeah. that that she starts exhibiting this more savage yeah and then poor Louisa falls off Lyme Regis yeah <laughs> well <laughs> it's one of the more dramatic incidents in Austin isn't it, it is it you is know, um, and and really you know a piece of artificial machinery mm. that that's kind of introduced in order to further the plot and to yeah. to create a a situation. Of violence in the plot mm. that forces a reappraisal of the world, mm. um, changes people's positions with one another, changes you know it upsets yeah. the social order. There's an accident. Yeah, 
and it's not often that we see Austin, I think, do something as kind of No, um, the only other thing that, that, that... Well, I suppose in most novels there... There has to be something. something. Yeah. I mean, there's the but elopement in Pride a, and Prejudice. Yeah. There's like Box Hill in, in Emma. Box Hill in Emma. Um, in North and Garabi, there's General Tilney. Yeah, Turping Catherine, Catherine out. out. So there you go. She does it all the time. Yeah, but I suppose <laughs> that this is like the most dramatic, I think. Yeah. Because think. it is a, it is, Louise in Italy does die. She hits her head. Yes. Um, and so she could very well have died. So it is quite a dramatic incident. And because it's at Lyme Regis, this, you know, quite um, dramatic part of the English coastline and, and it was kind of an interesting place because of all the fossils they were finding there at the time. Mm. Um, so it's got this kind of resonance, I think. Mm. And we also And see, they've gone there for a purely yeah um, superficial reason, reason. Yeah. They haven't got a good reason for going there. It's purely to indulge Louise's whims who's trying to impress Captain Wentworth by Yeah. And you get the sense too, don't you, in those sections about how bored yes. they are. You yeah, know, yeah. Like it's just we've, they've got nothing to do. They've got no and, and especially the Elliots because they're completely upended from their home. So they're just sort of wandering around, really, trying to find something to fill in the time. Mm. It's a really savage kind of portrait of, like, the, the upper class, the aristocracy and how kind of um, morally corrupt they've become. So the father has lost all the, his money, as we said earlier, and the sister is this, you know, bitter, washed-up woman who is just bitter and twisted and terrible. And they just sort of wander about trying to fill in their days really mm. it's this awful portrait of, of a social world that's built on nothing you think no wonder Anne Elliot feels so isolated because she is presented as much more you know in touch with herself intelligent and she's got really nobody to talk to even no except for her friend Miss Smith yes but she kind of does that it's not exactly clandestine yeah but it's it's also not quite but it's under the radar because yeah. You know, her her father ha- can't pay her enough attention to realise that there might be anything degrading or anything in her yeah. going to see this she's relatively common... Yeah. You know, she's just Anne. It doesn't really matter what she does. Yeah. So... But it's interesting that, that this, you know, relatively common, relatively um, unimportant, unimportant in inverted commas, woman is the person who gives her the information that is actually the most useful. But only, uh, only yeah. after she realises she can't exploit her for it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the, the, at the point where she's congratulating Anne on the impending marriage to her cousin, and Anne yeah. is saying, <laughs> what are you yeah, talking yeah, about? I, I, I ain't married. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going there. He's going, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But you were going to get me my money. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you've got no money for me? Okay. Now I'm going to give you the information. Now, now I'll give you the real... Yeah, the real download. <laughs> Is she a portrait of Charlotte Smith, do you reckon? Could be. I don't know. Yeah. You know more about Charlotte Smith than I do, so... So Charlotte Smith was a romantic <laughs> poet who was um, a very popular and very wonderful romantic poet, but she was also a woman down on her Very life. influential Very well. influential, yeah, Absolutely. Um, but she was also very down on her luck. She had like 13 children and mm. a husband who was a gambler um, who she eventually left, which is quite a big thing to mm. leave your husband in the 1790s, this was. Um, highly admired by, by Jane Austen. But also somebody who was always... Did Austen know her? I don't. Did yeah, she... Austen did not know her in person. No, but she, did. I mean, she knew, she knew of her, her work. work. But... Yeah. And what was legendary about Charlotte Smith was every... Thing she wrote and everything she did was about positioning herself as the poor beleaguered woman, which she was, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, she was this poor beleaguered woman with, you know, so many children and 
you know, this terrible husband who she was married off to at, like, 15. Um, but she liked to talk about, you know, herself and how you should give her money because she's got, you know, a thousand children and <laughs> no money. So I'm, I wonder if that's a portrait of Charlotte Smith. Other people besides me have suggested that at length. Mm. But it's, it's always interested me because mm. she's so mm. engaged with the literary culture of her time. Mm. And that's something you see in Persuasion, don't you? Because you yes. see her talk about the romantics. Yes, yes. Did you want to talk a bit more about that since you're a romantic <coughs> poetry dude? Well, you know, I mean, just, I suppose, to the extent that there is a, a tendency or there, there has at times been a tendency and it's more amongst, I suppose, popular conceptions of the period and of the mm. literary culture of the time to have this separation between the romantics mm. over here on the left and Jane Austen over here on the right, and that they're, they're completely separate worlds. Or that Jane, or that Jane judged interests. the romantics. Well, that's right. Mm. So that she judged them, that mm. she found them lacking, wanting, had no interest in them, she found them distasteful, all of those kinds she of things. She turned up her nose, yeah. Turned up yeah. her nose. Um, and yet she's able to, quite comfortably in persuasion, introduce... The poem, the poets, and ideas from their poetry, and use them in a way which um, is very useful in characterising Captain Benwick. Mm. Um, that is very, you know, subtle. It's not overdone, and it and it, you know, inst- it demonstrates a kind of um, a- appraisal or that, that is not entirely damning, I suppose, yeah. of, of the, the romantics. And and you know she she is interested in similar ideas to the, mm. the 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 things that the romantics are interested in in terms of the structures of society, um, ways in which to do things differently or better, um, the function you know the, the the entrapment of women and the the, the positioning of um, uh, you know the, the I suppose that whole gothic element of, of romantic poetry. Mm. Which again is quite often overlooked in favour of all of their, you know, highfalutin mm. intellectual pursuits. But you know, particularly the younger generation of romantics, but also Wordsworth and Coleridge, mm. very gothic in their interests, very interested yeah. in um, that kind of popular culture kind of stuff, and the intersection between high and popular culture. And they were deeply also engaged in the <coughs> kind of social awareness and social world that that. Austin was in, she, they understood as well as she did that the world was set up against certain people um, and that, you know, the, arist- the aristocrats had all of this kind of power that they were using in negative ways. Um, mm. So there are alignments there. Mm. And um, she obviously knows them. You know, it's the same in Northanger Abbey. Um, people say, you know, Northanger Abbey is about, you know, Jane Austen's hatred of the Gothic novel. But if you look closely, she's read a hell of a lot of them. And she takes them seriously. And and the same thing in persuasion. She knows her romantic poetry. She knows the literary culture of the day deeply. Well, I mean, to move a little bit more focusedly onto North and Grabby, I mean, one of the, the, the wonderful things about that novel, it's such a subtle satire mm. of the Gothic novel mm. that uses the Gothic mode impeccably. Mm with sophistication in order to create a really vibrant narrative that is itself gothic. Goth- yes, that's right. Um, at the same time as gently sending it up. Mm. Um, and see, again, with the romantics, a lot of people consider the romantics as being very po-faced, mm. very serious, mm. you know, deep emotion, what have you. But all of the romantic poets also had that, except for Wordsworth, 
<laughs> had that ability to laugh at themselves That's and right, to yeah. and to laugh in general. I mean, Byron, his best work, and he knew it mm. was Don Juan. And, you and know, that's sending himself and up. And that's yeah. sending himself up and sending mm. up his whole, you know, it, it's entirely satirical. Mm. Um, you know, Keats as well can write poems about, you know, his obsession with women and about mm. drinking and, you know, all these fun things as well as the, mm. the deeply impassioned material. Mm. Um, Shelley liked Peacock's Nightmare Abbey because yeah. of the way it sent him up. Like, yeah. you know, it's not that they didn't have an ability to look at themselves and laugh and see how other people might find them ludicrous figures. Mm. Um, and so, you know, she, when Elliot in Persuasion draws um, Captain Benwick's obsession with the romantic poets in order to, you know, demonstrate his, um, his being dominated by an improper an improper grief mm. um, or an improperly strong grief... Yeah. And, you know, come out of that. That is almost, you know, a similar kind of um, satire on the romantics as what she mo- mobilises in um, Northern Grabby against yeah. the Gothic novel. Well, I mean, the thing with persuasion that's often been said and which I agree with is it's actually the most romantic mm. of her novels. Mm, absolutely. Both romantic in terms of capital R romanticism but also romantic little r. It's actually a romantic novel. It's much more romantic, purely romantic, than a lot of her novels that have come before it. Um, in the the love story is so kind of um, strongly kind of drawn out and, and obviously meant to move you mm. in mm. ways that, um, say, something like Northanger Abbey, the love story isn't as kind of foregrounded. No, and mm. I mean in Pride and Prejudice, it's more fun. <clears throat> it's more fun, yeah. and it, it's it's almost formulaic. Yeah, and. You know, it, it's it's set, but 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 it you know follows a really clearly staged narrative yeah. arc all the way through. And I suppose there are less stakes because you know, in Pride and Prejudice, absolutely from the first page, what's going to happen. Right. Whereas, I mean, even though you know in Northanger Abbey, if you know Jane Austen, that it's going to be a happy ending. If because they've they've not had a happy ending, because they have suffered, because they have been separated, and they are so individually unhappy it feels like greater stakes are involved you know like it could go badly mm. you know it could mm. it could not work out this is the triumph of kind of hope over experience and you know in in emma mm. um there you know emma's always imagining that mr knightley has interests in other people and yeah. what have you but in persuade so so it's all imagination it's all in emma's imagination he's never really interested in anybody other than her and you know as a reader and you know as a reader he's never <laughs> yeah, interested yeah. in anybody other yeah. than, other than her it's always coming together but in persuasion we know that captain wentworth has been interested in Anne. Mm. we know that there is still an intense emotion there but that he seems determined mm. to have somebody else just to spite her to and to he show is her. and he is we yeah. know that that is that mm. that is real Mm. Um, and and so it does increase the you know it changes the stakes it it means that you know the the the, the likelihood of Anne's marrying uh, and, and you know social circumstances she's twenty eight mm. he could easily get Louisa Musgrove he could yeah and he nearly does yes and he says I nearly did marry her mm. I was very close to marrying her until the, the despite fall. never really loving her, loving yeah. her 
because of the fact that she's young and vibrant and because yeah. it will kind of rub Anne's nose. In yeah. I mean, you know, these she's are fun kind of and his... she's pretty and, she, and she'll piss Anne off, so it's all good. She, she'll yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the letter, <laughs> the famous letter mm. that that, um, that he writes her, you know, where that is accepted as, you know, the most romantic letter in English literature, <laughs> which I agree with. It's a wonderful letter. But, you know, it is, it is, a, it is a real romance. Mm-hmm. It, and it has real emotion and real real stakes and real kind of resonance. But I'm not saying that, you know, you can't find other Austens romantic because they all, they all play with romance kind of narrative. But this, this is the one that feels realist, I think. So this kind of comes back to the issue that I raised earlier yeah. about saving need, the, the yeah. masculine Does saviour. Does the man need to save and, her? and is that ultimately Jane Austen's solution? I don't know. Well, okay. I don't think that there is a solution for Anne Elliot beyond marriage to Captain Wentworth mm. in her time, mm. right? Because it's not like she can go and go, okay, stuff you guys, I'm going to go, I don't know, get a career or travel the world. She has to marry in order to escape her terrible family. But does that mean that the only potential for women is to find a nice guy to marry? I don't know. Because Austen herself rejected marriage. She did. You know, she rejected, she she said no to men. She didn't have any shortage of people who wanted to marry her. She said yes to a proposal and then took it back the next day. She had a career. It's not like her career was completely out of the, um, you know, off the table for women. No. And she was very, very single-minded in her pursuit of that career. She wanted to make money. She managed her career like a, a professional businesswoman. So it's not like no, that's... her her family... Her family were less comfortable with that image. Yeah, that's right. Her family didn't want. I mean, they supported the her in her career yeah. while she was alive. But after she died, but after they she did a died, lot of they, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that this is a, a, a sign that that the, a, a man has to say? Well, look, you know, I think that for me, you know, what, Austin is a writer who is working over a saw. Yeah. In her novels, every novel is about this same issue mm. of <clears throat> women have really got few choices. The The way that society operates is very rigid, very formulaic. And because of that, women are safe in certain ways. And we can't discount that safety. Mm. And we might come back to this in discussing Northanger Abbey mm. because it's a really important thing in Northanger Abbey as well, that, mm. that, that way in which um, society mm. provides a safety net, which is really important and useful. Um, but at the same time, it positions women in such a way that they have so little ability to exist that it creates all kinds of problems for which there seems to be limited resolution. Mm. And the only resolution continually in these novels is that the only resolution that's enacted is marriage which resolves certain problems but as we see from all the presentations of marriage in all of her novels yeah invites a new set of issues that are equally problematic and insurmountable and that's really interesting in persuasion because we can date persuasion to 1815 and so we know that Anne Elliot and um, as in the action to 1815. Yes. So we know that Anne Elliot and Captain Wentworth are poised right before Waterloo. Mm-hmm. And Captain Wentworth is in the Navy, right? 
Um, so there is a sense of impending... I mean, we know that Britain would win and triumph, right, and it would be one of their great victories. But we know that there is war coming. Impending danger. In, impending danger. Um, potential death, destruction, yeah. widowhood. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, I mean, she has intention to be aboard the ship yes. with Captain Wentworth. Now, I don't think, were they going into battle? Yes. Would be allowed. That, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, but, I don't think she was, you know... But the sea is a dangerous place, and, and right. that is driven home forcefully through the young Musgrove yeah. boy, Richard Musgrove, yeah. who has died um, through discussions of, you know, the, the effects, you know, of what happens in war and the and it's not And it's not a comfortable existence. It's not like, no. you know, staying home and, and being comfortable. <clears throat> it's, it's a rough and tumble. It's a physically demanding existence that she's going into. It's presented as kind of morally virtuous, but no. it's also... Rough. Though Admiral Croft yes. and his wife, who yes. is Captain Wentworth's sister, mm. are one of the very few seemingly entirely yes, that happily married couples yes. in the entire of Austin's oeuvre. Mm. And part of the reason for that happiness, according to Lady Croft, is the fact that she is freed from certain of the social constraints. Yeah, she doesn't have to In manage a household. Being, she doesn't have to manage a household. Being aboard a ship, mm. she has the freedom to go places, to do mm. things, to see things. Absolutely. Um, there is a rigid hierarchy of system. on the. I mean, the, the ship is one of the most rigid hierarchies mm. Uh, a naval ship in particular in that mm. t- period. The, 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 the hierarchy, hierarchical systems are entirely rigid. But there's no place for a women, woman in them. So, so being in there, she doesn't have uh, an appointed position in that society. And so that creates a kind of freedom mm. for, for herself. Mm. And so, you know, Anne in marrying Captain Wentworth is entering into a similar kind of, potentially similar kind of arrangement to um, the Admiral and his wife. And she maintains that her happiest periods were when with uh, when she's aboard the ship with mm. her husband now as an admiral he doesn't have a ship so often yeah he doesn't have to be out he doesn't have to yeah. be out at sea and there's a different you know that when we see them socially um they share the driving of the carriage yeah. they they're, they're do everything almost they? together yeah. by choice yeah um which is you know pretty much unheard the only other thing uh, the only other couple that I can think of similar are the Phillips. The Gardeners. The Gardeners, sorry. Yeah. The Gardeners in, um, in yeah. Pride and Prejudice. And again, they're and kind of further down on the social spectrum because they're not, um, they're, they're lawyers, or Mr Gardner's a lawyer, so yes. he's a working person. What do you think accounts for this kind of really, really positive depiction of the Navy in Austen, in Persuasion? Is it a symptom of when it was written post-Waterloo? Is it a symptom of the fact that many of her brothers... We're in the Navy, and she was just, you know, hey, Navy's great. Look at my wonderful sailor brothers. What do you think's going on there politically? Look, I, I as think well? I think there are a few things. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think that both of those circumstances that you mention are are strong strong influences. Mm-hmm. Um, Austen famously, in her instructions to her niece about what to write, you know, <laughs> the, one of the things is essentially write about what you know. Yeah. Um, and she knew the Navy. Yeah. She knew um, what it was like to have brothers in the Navy um, who were doing fairly well. Yeah. Um, and so, and the fact that the Navy in war, when things didn't go wrong, could achieve 
social movement, mm. social change. Yeah, that's right. Um, in a positive way for people who, um, who who were in the navy, but that also there were risks involved. Mm. It's kind of a gamble. Yeah, um, like and and Wentworth is a great example of that social mobility because he's considered <coughs> beyond the pale for Anne, but then he comes back super rich. Right, so he's, he's, he's taken great. a lot of prizes. Yeah, and because he's yeah. taken a lot of prizes, he comes back and now he's far more palatable. Yeah. Now he's not as ugly as he used no. to be. No, 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 no. Now carriage he's, is now he's actually very handsome. <laughs> and I, I mean, Lady Russell advises Anne not to marry him mm. because the risk is too great. Yeah, marriage is a is a kind of a gamble, a business transaction, and if you've, you've got, got to, to invest yeah. in this particular thing, you've got to weigh it up, and the chances are against him. Mm when he's only a very young man mm. and he doesn't have a ship and he doesn't have a fortune and what have you. By the time um, Anne reconnects with him, he has the fortune, he has had success in a series of increasingly mm. important ships and so his trajectory in the Navy, Navy is on the right path. He has influence in the Admiralty. Mm. Um, so, you know, everything is looking much rosier for him. And mm. so he is socially a far more useful character. And see, I mean, uh, the Navy is also a social microcosm, right? Yeah, that's right. So the, yeah. the naval system becomes a, a microcosm for... But, but that is also an alternative to the social mm. system in Britain. It's determined more on merit-based achievement than... The, the aristocratic system that... Mm, that is hereditary. That is hereditary yeah. and what yeah. have you. You achieve by by demonstrating your abilities mm. in the Navy. Um, you don't have ability in command of a ship, you die. Mm. Um, so there's a real, you know... Yeah. It's it, before it Darwin, be, but there's a Darwin, yeah, Darwinian process. It pays process to be good at your job in the Navy. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Although, um, whereas in the military, right, it, yeah. it's, it's an entirely different thing. You purchase commissions in the That's military. Right. Yeah. Um, you do also in the navy as well. But mm. you know, then in the military, you can send your men out, and they can all be slaughtered, and you get you a just, wrap over the knuckles back at home. And then for, you just get a new suite, and you get a new suite of men, suite of men yeah. to come through. Whereas in the navy, you've got a really expensive piece of equipment. Mm. Um, where if something goes wrong with it, everybody dies. Yeah, and if you and if you destroy a ship, you've destroyed. You know the equipment. And the expectation many, is that you dollars, will yeah. go down with the ship yeah, as the right. captain, right? You, yeah. You, you don't just abandon that expensive piece of equipment to. It is though a very, very optimistic vision, though, in many ways, of the navy as this kind of. And it's hard yes. to know whether it's it's Austin seriously saying this because she's never quite straightforward. She's never, you know, she's never really bow-faced or serious in a kind of simple way. When she says that you know they're distinguished for their for their moral virtue, mm. is this her being legit, or because you know there, there's bad behaviour at sea? There's a lot of very bad behaviour, and in fact, she makes a very off-colour joke about the navy and what they get up to at sea in mm. Mansfield Park mm -hmm. when when um, the rears and vices, and yes. you can work out what she means by rears and vices. So she's not exactly she's never she. She doesn't, she doesn't paint the navy. Back. She doesn't paint the navy in an entirely positive light. That's true. Yes. Um, and and I think Mansfield Park is a really yeah. you know important space to to yeah. document that. Mm. Um, Fanny's family are naval. Yeah. And they're rough and junk and they're rough yeah. and they're you know um, her brother, however, who is in the navy and who's been, oh he's fine. <laughs> he's fine. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it always depends on who you're talking about. That's yeah. right. That's right. But she, so. And, and even in persuasion, um, you know, Captain Benwick 
is positively mm. portrayed, but you know there are more grey areas around his character. That the what to do with naval officers in times of peace, mm. um, where they and and the effects of therefore the navy as with the military on the populace when there's nothing for them to do mm. um, militarily becomes a, a little a small problem to deal with as and well. And that was something that was there with the militia in Pride and in Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. They're just, right. Yeah, they've got nothing to do. They're kind of just hanging around um, and they cause absolute chaos. Yeah. yeah. So that is a, a recurring kind of thing. You know, what do you do with all these fighting men when they're just hanging around, really? Mm. <laughs> and as um, Anne's father says, they, they all look terrible as well. They're yeah, they're all sea-weathered. They're, they're all sea-weathered. They've got no sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> they've got no sunscreen then, so, you know, there's UV rays are very damaging to the complexion. <laughs> it's not like those um, those red coats with the, the army in Prime Prejudice where they're kind of quite dashing figures, that's right. Mrs. Bennett would that's, say. That's right. <laughs> now, we have, like, five minutes right. left, good, um, good. to talk about Northanger Abbey. Um, Northanger Abbey, these are, it's interesting that they're published together because they've kind of bookend... Mm. Um, Austen's career. So Northanger Abbey is is something that she wrote when she was very young and came back and revised. And Persuasion is not the last novel she was working on, but the last completed novel. How, do you see any resonances between the two texts? Well, yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> I think that, as I've already mentioned, mm. you know, what we, we there are actually a, quite a lot of resonances between mm. the two. It's not even a, a, a small number of overlaps. She's consistently interested in, as I mentioned before, the position of women. She's in social world. world. Mm. Um, She's interested in um, artistically um, how to present a story about how to draw particular characters. What she does in Northanger Abbey is a very young person's Mm. kind of thing. The, The machinery is all openly discussed. We might you know, there's an element of the the, the, the movement to you know postmodern self reflexivity and yeah. what have you about the the novel yeah, and what she's doing, yeah, and what she's doing, playfulness um, in there, um, which I think all are evident in in Northanger Abbey as well. But but for me, the the strongest resonance between the two is the the conceptualization of of the the the, the, the working over the issue of the position of women mm. and and um, and and. <clears throat> See in in North and Grabby, one of my one of the scenes that I always when I used to teach this in Gothic fiction mm. that I used to like working with with students was the the scene at the dance where Henry Tilney walks Catherine through the the procedure the the, the etiquette mm. of how they ought to engage with each other at, at the how dance how they can meet yeah. At, you ought to say this, and then I will say, say this, and, and then we and then we will bow, and then we'll yeah. do it. You know, and and he's mocking mm. at the same time as he's doing. Mm. Yes, right, mm. and, and that's exactly what Austin is doing. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly what Austin's doing. So mm. he is sending it up, but he is also demonstrating the legitimacy of the formula and demonstrating the importance of the formula. Yes. It does give them, in the world that they have, a forum in which a man and a woman who are prospectively looking to get married can meet and interact in a world where there are few other ways in which that can happen. Mm. And so it's formulaic, but it does provide a system that 
um, that, that is there that can make that thing happen, but that they don't, so that they can go through the motions of performing the ritual, but that there is room to play mm. within those formulaic constraints. So the formula is there, it establishes a pattern that has to be followed, but how we follow the pattern, we can individuate it, we can make it different, we can be playful, we can have fun with it, and it still performs the same effect because we're, we're, mm. we're completing the ritual. Um, it doesn't matter if we mock it, it doesn't matter if we send it up. And much of Northern Gravity is about that, the importance of the ritual, the importance of the stereotype, the mm. importance of all those things, and understanding that there is value in them, even at the same time as understanding that they are spurious and superficial and constructed mm. and, and all those things. And that is what I think people don't or misread about about mm. Northanger Abbey in that, you know, I mentioned earlier that people kind of read this novel as like, well, Jane Austen was you know, being snobby and looking down on a gothic novel. But she's not. Mm. I mean, she she's writes an impassioned defence of the novel. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is only the, the, um, the form in which the greatest effusions of the spirit and the... Fun, I can't remember how it goes. I've got a... Um, mouse pad with it written on it. <laughs> um, but um, she writes it an impassioned um, defence of the novel and she writes a gothic novel. It's yes. a gothic novel. Yeah, yeah. And, and Catherine Morland is in danger, real danger, yeah. um, throughout the novel, as a heroine of a gothic novel should be. Yes. And General Tilney is, is a gothic, a gothic villain. villain. Yeah. Um, he has... He abrogates all the rules of social decorum mm. in the pursuit of his own self-interests. He's a terrible man. He's a terrible man. He's mm. interested in money and appearance. Mm. And, you know, again, there's a strong overlap between yeah. um, the, the paternal patriarchal yeah, the figures pater- yeah, they're very in, in yeah. Persuasion and North and Garabi. And the, the issues are exactly the same. He's a venal man who is interested in position mm. and money and power more than he's interested in his children. And, and so he's his being children... terrible to his wife. He's terrible to his children. Um, the implication is that he hasn't killed his wife, but that he's kind of beaten her down and bullied her until she's kind of <clears throat> faded away. Yeah. I mean, he's a more malignant Charles Musgrove mm. in that, you know, he he ignores his wife. He's got no use for her now that he's married her because he's already got what money yeah. she had and what prestige she brought with her to the marriage. Mm. That's all done with. She's given him children. Yep. Um, You're done. Done. Yeah. Um, and he's using his children in exactly the same way. They're, mm. they're mechanisms for bringing money and prestige into the family. And they're scared of him. They're scared of him. Especially Eleanor is very... I mean, because she's got this you know, secret lover who she must keep from him. But um, she's, she's very um, twitchy when she's mm. around him. And she's very twitchy about you know, not uncovering kind of how bad he is and, and not kind of um, disrupting the surface kind of appearance of happiness that the family mm. has. She's always kind of trying to manage him and manage who comes into contact with him and how. And she's very, she's very nervous as a result. Mm. So he does exert fear. And they're also, I mean, you know, Henry Til- Tilney's, you know, attack on Catherine after he realises that she believes mm. that his father has murdered his mother, um, you know, is it the one time, you know, it shows us a blindness on his yeah. part. He's wrong. His, he, he's entirely wrong. Yeah. Um, he's, I mean, you know, he's, he's literally right, right. in that, you yeah. know, his father details. hasn't yeah. expressly locked her up and starved her to death mm. of physical nourishment. Mm. Um, but there is a spiritual, emotional nourishment mm. that seems to have been lacking. And, and certainly, you know, they're, 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 as you've said, they're, there's an implication that, you know, his treatment of her has hastened her to an early yeah. And, and he's also wrong in a kind of, um, like, really obvious way. Like, he says, 
well, murder can't happen in England because, you know, the neighbours would find out. Right. Like, obviously murder happens in England. And, you know... And the situation where he described, and you know, this has been commented upon widely mm. as well, the situation that he describes of the neighbourhood of spies... Yeah, it's exactly um, what's happening. ...is, is a very gothic thing as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, that we have no privacy, we have no... Um, you know, everybody is trapped yeah, and he in says this it, social and he says network. It, and he says it like it's a really positive thing, yeah. but, like, it's a really dark and ominous image of this, like... Everything you do is being monitored by everybody around you, so you better sort of step in line. It's mm. not, it's not a um, happy image, no. but he presents it as you know, well, isn't that great? Because you can't murder your wife because the neighbours would find out, <laughs> you know. And he's wrong. Yeah, you know, he's entirely wrong about his father, and he's also entirely wrong about the kind of social world and presenting that as this, you know, unambiguously good thing. Mm. Um, and of course, murders happen in England. <laughs> Let's not pretend that murders only happen in Italy and <laughs> no, <in> Spain. No. <laughs> the gothic locations. <laughs> um, I think we have completely run out of time, unfortunately. But thank <sighs> you shame. for discussing um, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey with me. Thank you, Steph. Um, if you haven't read Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, Christmas is fast approaching, and I cannot think of better books to read over Christmas and New Year. There are some lovely annotated editions as well, Harvard Press annotated editions. Yes. All the illustrations, fantastic. Yes, and really helpful notes, like not yeah, boring. Yeah. No. Yeah, really, really useful notes. Okay, so that was another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be incredibly helpful. And thank you to those who have already rated and reviewed us. That's really, really wonderful in helping other people find the show. And um, we'll see you again in a week. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Bye.